and welcome. Grab your Bibles. Today's going to be different. It's already different. It's 100 degrees in Huntington Beach, California. So let's just, let's just settle into the difference. I won't keep you long, but I do have a survey for you right off the bat. Last week, right now, and next week, what we're trying to do is refocus our eyes on the task that Jesus gave all of His disciples, every Christian, to speak of Him. The common word for that is evangelism, which literally means someone who is telling good news. That's what we are, that's who we are. There is a specific office and people who are especially called and gifted to evangelism. You may know Ray Comfort, a generation earlier, Billy Graham, but every Christian is to be a disciple maker. And next week on Friend Day, that's not really about the churros. I'm excited about the churros, but that's not the point. What we're doing next week is just having, offering some fun, engaging, hospitable things to give you a reason to invite your friends and give you something to do with your friends while you're here, in addition to hearing the best message of all, who is Jesus Christ. That is our first priority. It was Jesus' last commandment to us, but it's also something that's exceedingly easy to lose track of. Once you come to faith in Christ, the experience for most Christians is, with rare exceptions, they don't much talk to others about Christ. Their faith becomes extremely private and personal, and it doesn't really extend beyond their fellowship with other Christians, which is not at all what Jesus intended, and as I told you last week, it's the farthest thing from what Jesus commanded. So, we're going to have a little fun with technology this morning. This QR code on the screen will actually open into a survey. If you will aim your camera at this screen, you might need to zoom in, but if you do it, if your settings are correct and they should be ready to go, that will take you to the survey that's on the screen. This might be the only time in church you hear me to tell you to play around with your smartphone, okay? So if you'll indulge me, take just a few minutes to answer that survey. If you don't have your phone, if you don't feel like it, just answer the questions mentally, and I'm going to send you this survey on, on Thursday of this week when my regular church email goes out. We just want to take our evangelistic temperature. So right now, as awkward as this is, I'm going to give you about 90 seconds to complete this little survey right here. Just so you know, taking a picture of it won't work, but <laughs> if you aim the camera at the screen and zoom it in sufficiently, your web browser should kick in. I heard that. I've done that. You are not alone. You're a less competitive crowd. In the first service, someone yelled, I finished. No word on her answers. Don't overthink it. Just give me your raw, honest, first impression answers. 
And if you can't or won't do it now, I hope you'll join it on Thursday. Okay. As you know, if you've been coming to the church for any amount of time, this sermon is maybe not even really a sermon in the way that we normally deliver the Bible here. If you've been coming here for any amount of time, you know that our preferred method is to pick a book of the Bible and to move straight through it. It teaches you everything that God said. It keeps me honest and off my hobby horses. This is a little different. Last week I told you why Christians talk about Jesus, why we evangelize. Today I'd like to teach you how. There's much more than I could tell you than I have time for today, and this is not a conventional sermon that I'm just going to draw out topically three things that I think are vitally important when it comes time for Christians who want to tell other people about Jesus regarding how to actually do it. So, this is not a typical expository sermon. Consider this training. If you were sitting in my office and you told me that you have a friend that you dearly love to maybe is getting close to the end of their life and you'd like for sure to tell them about Jesus and His death and resurrection, but you weren't quite sure how to do it, this might be not all, but this will be some of what I share with you. Three principles, three ideas, three, I think, big biblical truths about how we should tell people about Jesus. The first is found in the Gospel of Matthew, and I'd actually like you to read it with me. Jesus is on the Sermon on the Mount. And speaking to his disciples, he says something actually rather stunning, something he actually said of himself as well, he said of them. Read this with me, Matthew 5, verse 14. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus begins with the stunning statement, you are the light of the world. If you really are a disciple of Jesus and you have been welcomed into the family of God by His grace, your identity is different now. You may actually have a hard time believing what he says about you, but you were saved and you were intended to be the light of the world. And then Jesus gives a word picture. If a city is on a hill, it cannot be hidden, and no one at home at night lights a light and then covers it up. The purpose of light in a home is to be seen. Then he makes the connection. He tells you the so what, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your, what's it say there? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. What's the principle? What's the biblical truth here? On our way to telling people about Jesus, it is important first that we always show good character and good works. People who name Christ should look like Christ. People who name Jesus and claim Jesus and explain Jesus and proclaim Jesus should actually act like Jesus as well. Always show good character and good works. That's vitally important. It gives the gospel credibility. It earns you a hearing if first you show 
the character of Jesus in your own life. If you show people your good works, Jesus says that has a powerful effect. And I want you to look carefully at verse 16 because you may have already thought of a contradiction. In verse 16, Jesus gave a commandment. This is not an idea. He's not putting something up for discussion. He's telling his disciples how to act. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Do you remember maybe that somewhere else Jesus said that you shouldn't do good works so that others can see you? Jesus contradict himself? Jesus a bad Bible teacher? Forgetful? What's going on here? It's all in the context. Jesus says, listen, you are the light of the world. As my disciples, you now represent my light in a dark place. And the point of light is to shine and to give light. It's not to be hidden. If you turned on a lamp at home and threw a tarp over it so that nothing could be seen, the people in the house might think you'd lost it just a little bit. What would the purpose be of lighting a light and then hiding it? It would, wouldn't do any good. You might as well not turn it on at all. And Jesus is. You're right. Your memory does not deceive you. Jesus explicitly says elsewhere not to do your good works to be seen and praised by men. Here's the key difference. There's no contradiction here. Jesus expects... He assumes and He instructs you to be dedicated to good works. What makes the difference? Motive. Look at verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and do what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The point is not for your good works to be seen so that they glorify you. Your good works are commanded, instructed, and inspected by Jesus so that they will see you, and then your, their vision will be diverted from your simple, bright life onto the Heavenly Father who put you there, who sent you there. It's all about motive. Any good work done in public, as many good works necessarily have to be done, put you in a dangerous spot of whether to attract the attention to yourself or divert the attention and point back to your heavenly Father. Your good works are necessary in the world. They're commanded in the world. Always show good character and practice good works. That's number one. Always show good character and good works. I got up at 5 o'clock this morning because I have a strange sermon preparation process. I look at the sermon very carefully before I go to sleep, and then usually I wake up with a new idea. Here's this morning's 5 a.m. idea. It struck me that in congregations like ours, speaking of the Calvins and their influence and their amazingly generous support for our missions program over these many years, in congregations like ours all across America, foreign missionaries will come back to their home country of the United States, show that they've been feeding the hungry, clothing the poor, rescuing children, building schools and hospitals, having 
taking people into genuine faith who were once, in the case of some tribal people we worked with in Mexico, they were worshiping rocks and rivers and trees, and now they know the actual creator of the world. And missionaries will tell those stories, and congregations will praise those stories. They will be moved to tears by it. They may be moved, in fact, to financially support the missionaries' work. And they will go home, maybe with a prayer card. If you're really into it, they'll have a card with the picture, missionaries' picture on it, and that will go on the fridge. How many of you have such a prayer card somewhere in your home? Anybody? Okay, we got to kick it up a little, uh, a notch here. We've got a lot of missionaries, and evidently we have not done a good job distributing their cards. I'm going to get to work on that. But then, that same congregation will be moved by the good works done overseas and go back out into their community, in many cases, never thinking about those good works being done in our own community by us. And there will be a disconnect where the good work, the heroic work, the sacrificial work, the visible life-changing makes a difference the same day it's done. Good work done in the name of Jesus is happening overseas and not being given nearly as much thought and nearly as much intensity and generosity as it is right here. We're living in an increasingly secular culture. And then and now, what was true of ancient Christians will increasingly become true of contemporary Christians. Our good works, our godly character, our good works done in an unselfish manner for the good of others and the glory of God is what will earn us a hearing, is what will make supernatural claims naturally believable in the world. Jesus knew this, Jesus expected this, and Jesus taught this. So did the Apostle Paul. Look in Titus, also on your bulletin, Titus chapter 2, verse 11. The grace of God has appeared. I want you to see how tightly connected eternal salvation is with Christians demonstrating that salvation through a changed earthly life. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. In other words, Jesus came for everyone. There's no one in the world who can draw near to Him and claim Him and believe Him who will be turned away. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Watch this. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The effect of the saving grace of God has an immediate earthly effect. It trains us to do what? To renounce ungodliness, to renounce worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are, what's it say? Zealous for good works. Not interested in them. Not willing to do them. Zealous for them. Zealous means that you have zeal, that you have passion, that you have drive 
to bring the good works that Jesus spoke of into the earthly world. Not thinking that good works can save you, not thinking that good works can save them, but thinking that your godly character and your good works will point irrevocably up to your heavenly Father and that people will find your level of love, of generosity, of kindness, of, of sacrifice, of, for, of willingness to forgive, incomprehensible. And when people see incomprehensible lives lived out right in front of them, they eventually ask why, and if they don't ask why, but you explain it to them anyway, they find your supernatural claims far more believable because they've seen something supernatural lived out right in front of them. The disconnect is this. If we talk about Jesus and act like jerks, nobody's going to believe us. It's just that simple. In an increasingly secular culture, the instructions of Jesus to take up our identity as the light of the world and to publicly live out good character and good works, not for our glory, but for the glory of God, is even more urgent. Our culture's changed. I don't know if you've noticed. I've seen it. I've felt it in my own neighborhood. Time was when I was a Bible college student and later a seminary student, in meeting new people, when they asked, what do you do, if I told them I'm a pastor, that would get me at least a polite good for you. Kind of like a school teacher or a firefighter. I would never want to do that. I think that's kind of crazy, but good for you. That's not an obvious evil. It's not true anymore. I live in a really nice neighborhood about a mile and a half from here. I love my neighbors, but I've heard catcalls on my own little cul-de-sac there goes the preacher. Drunken laughter. Doesn't bother me. That's just a reminder if people are willing to publicly mock someone they yet haven't met just because he's a preacher, what is your concept of God? It must be that God is a liar or an abuser or that the preacher is a manipulator and a money grubber. I have no idea what the concept is, but that signals to me that someone needs to hear the grace of God. They need to see the Christian life lived out in front of them. Since Jesus isn't here physically anymore, He's given the task to us to live out His life. That's first, and never underestimate it, especially in this culture. Good works preceded the work of Jesus. In John chapter 6, you can see it for yourself. Jesus has planned a day off for His disciples, but a great crowd interrupted their day off, and the Bible explicitly says that Jesus had compassion on them because He saw them as a sheep needing a shepherd, and He taught them many things. Later that, in that same story, the vast majority of people who heard Jesus that day ended up rejecting them, but He still fed them. But he went past mere do-good works. He presented himself as the truth of the world. He presented himself, himself as the answer, and he met their physical needs on the way to addressing their eternal needs. And that's where truth number two comes in. This is vitally important. Help them see the problem before you present Jesus as the solution. Again, back in the Bible college days, I'm in a reminiscent kind of mood. I was trying to whip myself into a reasonable physical shape before I got married. At the old, 
at the old Bally's Fitness right down the street here on Warner. Remember that? Some of the old timers will remember that. At Bally's, they had a terrible torture device called the VersaClimber. If you're not familiar with the VersaClimber, it is a thing where you step on pedals and grab handles and you kind of stay on there for a while because it's just embarrassing, it's too embarrassing to jump right back off, okay? It's a place for masochists and for captive audiences. But I decided that that would be, that that torched my legs, arms, and lungs so badly that that would be my machine of choice to whip myself back into shape. As you can see, I haven't been on the VersaClimber in a bit. <laughs> The laughter is personally hurtful, folks. I am a human being. <laughs> Someday that joke won't make sense. I'm working on it. Well, I'm on the Versa Climber, and there's a young woman next to me, and as people in their sharing suffering tend to do, how you doing? How's it going? What do you do? I said, I'm, I'm a seminary student. What's that? I'm studying the Bible and theology. Why would you do that? I said, well, I really, I thought this was a good way to get the conversation started. I said, I'd like to spend the rest of my life telling people that Jesus loved them so much he died for them. And she cursed. And she said, I'm so, and she cursed again, tired of hearing that. Who asked him to? And here's what I discovered that day. I had presented a solution without persuading her that she had a problem. It's actually really simple. If you tell me after this service that you paid off my boat, I'm going to think you're either crazy or confused. Because I don't have a boat. <laughs> I know people who have boats. I'm glad to ride on their boat and walk away from the boat, leaving them with the maintenance and the bills and the work and all that stuff. If, however, you tell me that you paid off my house. You're going to have a friend for the rest of your life. In fact, I'm going to rename both of my sons in your honor, whether they like it or not. If you happen to be a woman, it'll be good for them to build character, like the boy in the Johnny Cash song named Sue. I will owe you a debt of gratitude forever because housing is a debt that I actually owe. And if you tell me that you've addressed a debt that I know I owe and that I work hard to pay, then gratitude, then relief, then love, then blessing comes around. You have to help people see the problem before you present Jesus as the solution. And the way to do that is simply to show them God's standard through God's law. Look in Romans chapter 3. Open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 3 and let me show you. In Romans chapter 3, Paul is addressing both Jews and Gentiles, saying that though Jews are greatly blessed and have an advantage in that they were first given the Word of God, everybody, Jew and Gentile, is actually in the same kind of trouble because everybody has fallen short of God's standard. Everybody sinned against God. Look in verse 9 and 10, Romans 3, 9 and 10. Speaking as a Jew, Paul says, what then, are we Jews better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, 
No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. And then Paul, quoting the Old Testament verse after verse, shows that every single person in the world stands guilty before a God who is perfectly holy. Skip down to verse 19. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who were under the law so that every mouth may be, what? Stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Experiencing the righteous standard of God's law and God's character expressed in how God commanded us to live, that shuts everybody up. Let me explain. Again, when I was a young man and even dumber than I am today, my wife and I in probably our third or fourth year of marriage were going up the Amarillo Panhandle toward my hometown of Amarillo, Texas to see my grandmother who lived in a little town called Canyon. I had a rental car, not my junky college car, and I was putting, my, I was putting that car through its paces. I was getting full value out of the rental. I'd bought the insurance. I mean, I was ready to get 100% experience out of this rental car. And my wife, wise and loving, having grown up in nearby West Texas, said, Bruce, be careful. Remember, there's a speed trap up here. And I said, I'm from here. Let me drive. I know, very, very intelligent, very sensitive, very wise. Just imagine that even back then I was giving marriage advice. That's how bad it was, folks. Well, sure enough, it was Christmas Eve, and in my mind, nobody's out here. I'm on my way to Grandma's house. I've got reason. Well, there wasn't one embittered Texas Highway Patrolman out on the road that day. He didn't want to be there. He didn't want to work on Christmas Eve, but he was, and then I flew by in the rental. So he did what patrolmen do. He lit me up. He pulled me over. I was expecting a lecture. I didn't get it. He said, sir, would you accompany me to my vehicle? And I thought, oh, yeah, that was my reaction. I'm about to get arrested. It's really tough sitting there in the car when he's walking up to the car with my wife looking straight at me, the (laughs) right side of my face melting off, daring not to look because she was cool enough never to say it, but we all heard it. Told you so, right? And now our meager economy is going to be damaged by your stupidity. But anyway, he says, will you you accompany me back to my vehicle? So I sadly did. He sat me down beside him. He explained what a radar gun was. (laughs) He even told me what model it was. He explained the technology behind it. He explained that the big screen facing me showed the speed at which I had been traveling. He asked me if I could read it. I said, I can. He said, sir, would you tell me what that number is? I put my head down and I said, 89. He said, and sir, are you aware of the posted speed limit on this particular section of the highway? Yes. Tell me what it is. 55. (laughs) I know, I know. She said everything you're thinking eventually. So did my father. Called me a fool. I had nothing to say. His next words, after explaining my rights and how the process worked, he said two words, sign here. Guess what I did? I signed, and I paid the man his money 
A few weeks later, hundreds of dollars I could not really afford because I'd broken the law. When you show people the law of God, it has that effect. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Down to verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Here's the answer and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. If you only mention the gift and you don't explain why it's needed, if you explain that a debt has been paid, but they never believe that it's been owed, the gospel will not be believable. They will not see its beauty. If you don't believe you owe a debt, you'll never appreciate its payment. You have to present the problem before you tell them about the solution. And I have a little bit of homework for you. It's right there on your list. Do this. I'll send you the link on Thursday at the regular time for the church-wide email, but you can do it much sooner if you have a mind to. Please listen to my friend and brother Ray Comfort's sermon, Hell's Best Kept Secret. I think it's one of the most important messages ever preached in modern times. It helps historically and biblically evaluate the error that the church, I don't think through malice, I think through honest, well, poorly thought but good-hearted intentions, the idea was to present the gospel and to present Jesus as something attractive, not a solution for a deadly disease. Ray gives this example. This won't spoil the sermon for you at all. If you're on a flight and the stewardess comes by with a parachute and says, we, we have a new enhancement on our aircraft. If you will put this parachute on, you'll have a much more enjoyable flight. Well, if you put that on and feel the weight of it and it's pushing you forward and it's making you hot, Within probably 30 minutes, certainly an hour, you're going to think the stewardess is either crazy or a liar, and you're going to take that parachute off. It was presented to you as an enhancement. Now, if on another flight the stewardess comes by and after a PA announcement says, we've lost one engine and we believe the second is failing... We're going to train you in a few minutes, but we're bringing parachutes for each of you. Each of you put on this parachute. In about five minutes, you'll have to jump for your life. Do you think you'll take the parachute? Will you hold on to it? Its discomfort will remind you of its life-saving purpose. You will be grateful for it. But if the offer is, come to Jesus, He'll make everything better, and life continues to be difficult, and you still get sick, and your loved ones still die, and you still suffer in this world and the injustices of others, you think you've been told a lie because even if it was unintentional, you were. The good news of the gospel is the eternal life with Jesus begins now. He does bring 
wonderfully great blessings, but there is suffering in this world as a Christian and for being a Christian, but your best life, your eternal life will be lived fully and perfectly someday. The law of God is the only way to hear the gospel is good news, and if you don't believe that you owe a debt, you'll never appreciate its payment. Here's the third and final idea. This is very simple, and this is the actual practice. This is where you cash in what your credibility of good works, which is not strategy, that's just your Christian life owed to God and to others. When your good life shines before other people and they're ready to hear why you act and love and serve and give and forgive the way that you do, and when you know that if you are going to present a great gift you must first help them understand that they desperately need it. Number three, tell your before and after story as you announce God's good news. If you are a Christian, you know what Jesus did for you. You can start there and weave together your own need. Do you remember, I'm talking to my fellow disciples of Jesus, my fellow Christians here, do you remember your life before Christ? Do you appreciate the difference He has made? Do you appreciate the future that He has promised? You can share that story, bolstered, platformed on godly character that actually reminds people of Jesus, telling them that this was not a choice of values for you. In other words, you didn't just pick a lane and a road where everybody's headed in the same direction but that Jesus in His grace intercepted you and turned you completely around and He has made all the difference and His death, burial, and resurrection is what has given you life eternal and hope and comfort right now. That story can be heard and it will be heard. The only thing our increasingly and aggressively secularizing culture gives us sacred space and sacred permission to tell is our own story. Maybe you've heard the phrase, it's called lived experience. Everybody's got a right to their own story. And when you say, I want to share what matters most to me, I want to tell you what my life has been. At this stage in our cultural development, there is tremendous cultural expectation and promise that everybody must listen to you, whether they believe you or not. So let's take that. Tell your story and make His eternal claims. If, like Jesus Himself was, you're rejected, I say this with love, who cares? Jesus was rejected. He told us this, that was part of the story. All we are are people who tell the good news. It's not up to us to drag people to belief and conversion. Only God can do that. Here's how Paul explained it. Paul used a farming analogy. He said, I planted another man watered, but God has given the increase. We are people who tell good news. Listen to Peter back in 1 Peter where we were, where we've been for months. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, 
those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Sounds to me like Jesus was list- Peter was listening to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He lived that whole life for decades before they killed him for his witness for Christ. Now he's telling Christians, listen, suffering as a Christian is normal. It's expected. If you suffer for his sake, you'll be blessed. Don't be afraid. Don't be troubled. You keep honoring Christ in your hearts, and if anybody asks, you be ready to tell them about the hope that you have. Do it gently and with respect and have a good conscience because it may be that they're slandering you as a Christian. It may be that God activates the conscience He gave them so that they may feel shame and they may actually come around to trusting Christ who is the center of your life. In two weeks, on September 18th, we want to ask you to summon up some Christian courage and bring your friends and loved ones. I'm almost settled on the story I'm going to tell them. It's a parable from Jesus showing two men going to prayer. One man thinking he's good enough for God, the second knowing that he's not. And Jesus said only one of those men went home justified in the sight of God. It's a very simple story. I hope that you'll pray for me as I prepare to tell it, if that's in fact where I land, and I believe it will be. But more than anything, I'd like to invite you in two weeks to invite some people with you who need to hear about Jesus. We all have them, and we have a responsibility and a privilege to tell the good news, so let's get started. You stand, pray with me, please. just take a moment to pray and bow our heads and have a little moment of privacy to ourselves, please. Can you think of the names and faces, people you'll want to invite? Could you pray for them? And listen, this is as important as anything I'll say today. What about you? It'd be a terrible shame huge mistake on my part if I spent 35, 40 minutes training people how to share the good news and not ask you if you've actually believed it. We have good news to tell. The holy life, perfect life, willing substitutionary death and resurrection of Jesus to forgive anyone who admits to Him and agrees with Him They've sinned against God and they cannot save themselves. Is that you? Are you a disciple? Have you believed that good news? Have you put him in charge? If not, can I invite you to do so? No good knowing how to tell others until you've believed yourself. Lord, I pray for...